0: Good morning. We're talking about the ties that bind, and in this series, as Jay mentioned, we're doing some character studies, getting to know some biblical characters in order to identify emotional connections that moved them either toward God or away from Him. And this morning, we're going to look at a couple, and we're going to follow them on the path that led them away from God, the worst of the kings of ancient Israel and the worst of the queens, Ahab and Jezebel. If you have your worship folder, take it out with me and we'll look at 1 Kings chapter 16. It says, Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel and he reigned in Samaria over Israel, 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. Following the reign of King Solomon, Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the reason why, uh, Solomon ushered in the glory days for Israel, but he also expected a lot of people in his kingdom, he taxed people heavily, conscripted people into service. So when he died, they came, the individuals who lived further in the north from him, Jerusalem is in the south, there were a lot of tribes in the north, and they came to his heir, which was Rehoboam and I've talked about this, uh, Rehoboam ended up being the kingdom, the king of the south. Jeroboam ended up being the king of the northern part of Israel, so they call him the Boom Boom Brothers. Rehoboam, Jeroboam, I'm sure you're glad to know that. What ended up happening... The individuals, the emissaries from the north um, say, listen, light, light us, lighten up on us. You know, you're, you're really conscripting a lot of us into labor. You're taxing us very heavily. And so they were talking to Rehoboam. They said, let us uh, lighten up on us, and then we will serve you. Everything will be fine. And he ended up meeting with his advisors and indicating, my father went easy on you. So they said, okay. And then Israel at that point divided into a northern, more, more populous kingdom, which was called Israel. And the kingdom of the south, the southern kingdom, was called Judah. Ahab was the son of King Omri. Omri brought the northern kingdom of Israel into great power. And as we'll understand why he established Samaria as its capital, friendly relationships existed between the Israelites and the Philistines, who were a powerful nation, you remember, in David's time, that Goliath was one of the Philistines. And so, but these are Phoenicians, so. Why am I talking about Philistines? It's Phoenicians anyways. Different kingdom, but they had had friendly relations during Omri's reign. And Ahab, when he took the throne, he decided it would be politically expedient to marry one of the Phoenician princesses. And this he did. He married Jezebel. And in so doing, galvanized the relationship between those two countries. Jezebel, like the foreign wives of Solomon, required facilities for carrying on a form of worship. And it was not unknown for Solomon to build some places for his many wives to worship. And Ahab did the same thing. He made an altar for Baal in a shrine that he built in Samaria. And he might have thought that he would experience happily ever after, but he might have benefited from learning more about Phoenician culture. Phoenician women were used to having a more active role in government than their Hebrew counterparts. As such, Jezebel would, was customary, it, it was, she expected to have a more active role in establishing the worship of Baal, and so this is what she did, and she wanted to put Baal worship as the national religion of Israel. She was a very strong woman. She organized and maintained guilds of prophets, 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. She also destroyed prophets of Israel, as many as she could reach. Not only did she become involved in religious affairs, she also helped her husband out. She took charge um in other areas. I'm going to read you, uh, in fact, it's I believe it's, In 1 Kings 21, just to give you another picture of Ahab and Jezebel. Look what it says, 1 Kings 21. Ahab went home, sullen and angry, because Naboth, the Jezreelite, had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. He lay on his bed sulking and refused to eat. He inquired about this vineyard. He asked Naboth if he could have it. Naboth said, no, this has been in my family a long time. You can't have it. And so he went home and sulked, and he refused to eat. Now, Jezebel was not the sulking type. And so Jezebel, his wife, said, is this how you act as king over Israel? Get up and eat. Cheer up. I'll get the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name, placed a seal on them, and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city with him. In those letters, she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting, seat Naboth in a prominent place among the people, but seat two scoundrels opposite him and have them testify that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Love Jezebel. (laughs) She made good on her plan. She did exactly what they said. The scoundrels accused Naboth, and they took him out and stoned him to death, and she was able to hand over the vineyard to Ahab, her husband. This is just a little snippet of what happened, but the violence, bloodshed, idolatry occasioned by Jezebel and Ahab around the aroused the indignation of a very powerful prophet, Elijah. Elijah. One of the prophets he confronted Ahab and charged him with the sin of following Baal, and the problem was not that they were forsaking the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. they weren't forsaking him, but they were adding a God to the worship of the God of Israel, the God of agriculture, the God of civilization, Baal, was considered to be the god of agriculture, the god of cities, the god of farming. The god of Israel was the god of desert, the god of journey. So if you had a wilderness you had to go through, you wanted the god of Israel. But if you lived in the city, wanted to raise a good crop, then you needed the the climate god, the agriculture god, the civilization god. You needed Baal. So what they decided is, why choose? Let's put the god of Israel in one pocket and the god of agriculture and the other one. And that seemed like a good thing, I guess, from one point of view. Elijah came and said, no, choose who you will serve. And so, in order to get the people to choose one or the other, God commissioned the battle of the gods on Mount Carmel. Elijah had two altars set up, one dedicated to Baal, one to God, Yahweh, and a bull to sacrifice on each altar. You know the story. The prophets of Baal had home field advantage. Mount Carmel was a site for the worship of Baal. And the what, the way the competition would favor Baal as well, because he was the god of agriculture, the god of rain, the god of fire, the god of lightning, all those things. So here's how this competition went built two altars, and the God who consumed the blood on the altar was the God who won. Supporters of Baal called upon their God to send fire to consume the sacrifice. Nothing happened. So, true to form, Elijah began trash-talking. And here's what he said. I'm going to read it from the Living Bible. This is great. About noontime, Elijah began mocking them, trash-talking. You'll have to shout louder, Scott, for he surely is a god. Perhaps he is daydreaming or relieving himself. (laughs) Perhaps he had to step into the bathroom to take care of an important need. Um, Or maybe he's away on a trip. Maybe he's asleep and needs to be wakened. Naturally, they reacted to this. They began cutting themselves and doing all kinds of things to show their devotion to Baal, really cranking up the volume. Nothing. And then Elijah gets up and says, okay, my turn. Pours a bunch of water on the altar and the sacrifices, pours more water on the sacrifices until it's like a pond. And then he... um, fall down fire from heaven and then immediately consumed the offering. And then he ordered the people to seize the prophets of Baal and slaughtered them. Superiority of Elijah and his God in the test of Carmel fired the vengeance of Jezebel. And she was frightening. After slaughtering 450 prophets of Baal, he learned that Jezebel was gunning for him, and, and Elijah did what he thought prudent. He ran. He fled to the wilderness where he mourned the devotion of Israel to Baal and the lack of worshipers of Israel's God. One of the strange things in the Bible, when you see how much headache and how much suffering it caused, idolatry. Worshipping stick figures of gods or Buddhas, with why? What is that about? Especially if you worship an idol and you are punished for doing so, why in the world would you go back to worshipping? I mean, is it really that good to have a figure like that around? Is it that important to have a figure? And so, anyways, what is? It's it's hard to see what the appeal is, but when you can, when you Consider, actually, we understand pretty well. Idolatry is linked to security. That's why you want an idol, to make sure, just in case. And the reason why I think we understand is when the Bible talks about money, it casts money as an idol. Money is an idol. Something that you you derive security from. We understand idolatry, don't we? We understand how it works. We worship God. And again, I'm not pointing a big bony finger here. We worship God, but we also need money. And, and that's what's difficult about money. It's a little bit tricky because we do have to handle money. And so how do we handle money without treating it as an idol? But what I'm pointing out is that we understand the nature of idolatry. We understand what, what that's like um, Linked with security, the Bible says, put to death, therefore, in Colossians, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. This is what it says, which is idolatry. read that again. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And the question we're going to ask, how? How do you do that? How do you not derive security from things that lead down a path away from God? How do you pull that off? How do you put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality? How do you put that to death? Impurity. Lust. Evil desires. Those are, those are a bad list. But then it says right in that list, and greed. And talking about greed, it says, which is? Idolatry. We understand idolatry. We live in the most affluent country, civilization, that the world has ever known. We understand greed. We understand how difficult it is. How do we put greed to death or any one of a number of sins? Um, one thing we need to do is understand what's behind idolatry. And again, it's security. The fact is that God and money make godlike claims. We've talked about this before. God makes these claims, I will never leave you and forsake you. what God says. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. What that means, those are really interesting image. I will never leave you, leave you. The image is a boat tied up on a dock. And to leave is the image is to untie the boat so that it drifts. What But God says, I will never leave you. He's saying, I will never cast you adrift. I will never cast you adrift. I will not untie you from a place of safety. I will not let you float. When he says, I will never leave you or forsake you, to forsake someone is to put them into a place where they have something to do and they fall into danger in that place. And so to forsake them, would be to leave them where they are and not assist them. It's something that a Marine would never do. Semper Fi, they will not leave a comrade on the field of battle. That's, I think, what Semper Fi means. Always faithful, Semper failis. And that's what God says. I will never cast you adrift. I will never leave you behind. And that's what God says. And that's what money says. I will never untie you. As long as you have enough of me in the bank and in your retirement account, you can be assured of being in a safe place. And I will never leave you behind. If you have enough of me, there is no place where I cannot come to assist you. And I will assist you. That's the the deal. That's why it says in Hebrews 13.5, It's in your worship all to keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said never will I leave you never will I forsake you. I think that the principle is this understanding that idolatry is about security and promises are central. God makes promises. He says I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. What we see biblically is that Disobeyed commands come from disbelieved promises. Disobeyed commands are rooted in disregarded promises. If you look below disobedience, you will always find disbelief. Now, it's the sum of the time, all the time. That's the way it is with idolatry. That's really what it's like with any kind of sin. Beneath disobeyed commands... You always find disregarded promises. Let's talk about disregarded promises. Um, there's a verse we've looked at. I like it. Jeremiah 13 talks about wickedness in Israel. And look what it says, Jeremiah 13:10. These wicked people who refuse to listen to my words, who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, and... Go after other gods to serve and worship them. There is a breakdown here. There's a recurring pattern that we find throughout the Bible. It's sin goes from one step to a second step to a third step. The first step, refuse to listen to my words. Tune out. That's where it begins. We tune out God. God makes promises to us, and we tune out those promises. That's step one. Tuning out leads to the second step. It talks in the passage about following the stubbornness of their hearts. Tune out is first, following the stubbornness of the hearts. That second, that is tune in. Do you understand how that works? I tune God's promises out. I tune them out. Then, we all need security, don't we? Would you agree? Is is security a bad thing? Absolutely not. It's a natural thing. We're going to draw our security from someplace. If I don't draw my security from him, if I tune him out, what am I going to do? I have a security breach, a security problem. What am I going to do? I am going to consider what I need to do to secure my life. There's so many unpredictable elements in my life. I'm going to have to find somewhere to secure myself, to make sure I never get cast adrift, to make sure I never get left behind. And so I tune in. And that's what Jeremiah points out. They didn't listen to God. They followed the stubbornness of their hearts. Tune out, tune in, and then talks about went after other gods to serve and worship them, which is, turn from. Tune out, tune in, turn from. A recurring pattern we see throughout the Bible, we see it with Adam and Eve, don't we? Do you remember what happens with Adam and Eve? Remember what the serpent says? You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not surely die. You really, listen, can we talk? You really don't have to listen to that. Would you agree? Tuning out? You don't have to listen to God. You really don't have to pay any attention to him. Tune out. And then where did it go from there? When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Do you understand what's happening here? Tune out. Then where does it go from there? Tune in. Boy, that fruit looks good. And I am hungry. And it's also going to be something that will get me wisdom. Do you understand where that comes from? What wisdom will do? Because if I have enough wisdom, I won't get cast adrift, and I won't get left behind. Tune out, tune in, and what happened next? The birth of apple. You know, you know the bite out of the apple. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. <laughs> You know what we see we don't just see it with Adam and Eve, we see this recurring throughout the Bible. We see it in the northern kingdom of Israel as well. Um, we see it in the first king of Israel, Jeroboam, and when it says Ahab, son of Omri, did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebah. There were twenty kings of Israel, twenty kings in the north, not one good one. Ahab was the worst. Jeroboam was the first and what we're going to see, we're going to understand how did they get to that place? what happened? just um, it's a it's a pattern, a little bit of background. Um, they rebelled and made Jeroboam their king. Um, but here's what God said to Jeroboam. Look what it says in 1 Kings 11:31 to 32, is what God said to Jeroboam. You remember? After Solomon, the king divided in half, Boom Boom brothers, Rehoboam in the south, Jeroboam in the north, God went to Jeroboam, and this is what he said. If you do whatever I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and commands, as David my servant did, I will be with you, I will build you a dynasty as enduring as the one I built for David. What does he give him? What are these? What these are? Promises. These are security-inducing promises. Would you agree? I'm going to give you a lasting dynasty if you will obey me and do what I say. What we find is that he must have done this. He must have tuned God out. Because look what happens. The next passage. They had three feasts that they had to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the south with Rehoboam. That's part of the southern kingdom of Judah. And... Jeroboam is in the north, and he's starting to get nervous. This is what he gets nervous about. Hmm. Okay, my people need to travel to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, for the Feast of Passover, for some of those feasts. Hmm. They're going to go down into the kingdom of Rehoboam. And if they go there, you know what's probably going to happen? They're probably going to stay there. What if? Oh no. What if? Oh no. What if? Oh no. And he what if and no oh, no. You understand that, don't you? Do you understand what if and no oh, no? What if that? Oh no. What if that? And so what ends up, what he ends up starting to do? Has to tune in. This is bad. This isn't good. And so what he does, he must have forgotten the promises, mustn't he have? Remember what the promises An enduring dynasty. But he must have forgot it. Because then when the feasts come, he says they might go away. And then after seeking advice, First Kings 12, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. And this thing became a sin. Remember the story of the golden calf? It's really the same thing. In fact, exactly the same words. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. He quotes that. Because history is doomed to repeat itself. And I don't know why he would have quoted that, but anyways, what ended up happening... Um, He had to know he was traveling on dangerous ground, didn't he? Wouldn't you imagine he saw what happened when idol worship became the deal? What came over him? That was first. Tune out. That's where it starts. I'm not going to listen to promises anymore. Things that Give security. It's not just listen to God's commands. It's listening to his promises. Promises bring security. Security is a big thing. We want security. We want to know that somebody will not cast us adrift or leave us behind. And that's why God makes promises. And Jeroboam must have tuned God's promises out because tuning out led to tuning in. He began to find security other ways. Oh, I can't let them go down south to worship. And so what did he do? He turned from. And he made these shrines in the northern part of Israel that ushered in increasingly depraved worship. It started innocently. I'm not going to say innocently. But what happened, the idolatry that occurred, starting at this point, in the northern King of Israel, northern kingdom of Israel was unthinkable. Unthinkable. I was talking in Bible study this morning. They actually started to worship Molech in the northern kingdom of Israel. And this is what worshiping Molech was. Molech was kind of like a, well, a glorified fireplace with a dome, a big opening, and fire inside. And Molech had arms that were extended up like this. And what you would do to worship Molech is you would put a child on those arms and it would roll inside. And God said, things that I never would have imagined. Where does stuff like that begin? It began here. Do you remember the pattern? Three points. Can you remember them? It doesn't start in turn from, does it? It doesn't start there. What does it start in? What's first? Tune out. God makes promises. He gives us security-inducing promises. We start to tune them out. What happens when we tune out? We tune in. We begin to do things that secure us. And then when we tune out, Tune out, tune in, then what's the third? That's where that happens. Um beneath disobeyed commands, we find disregarded promises. Look what it says in Second Peter chapter one, verse four. This is an important verse. Let me tell you what it's gonna say before you look at it. It's gonna tell you again. It's gonna tell you how to participate in God's nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Look at me. Look at me. Is it your desire to participate in God's nature and experience from His nature a strength that you don't have? Would that be your desire? And is it your desire to escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires? Is that your intent? How are you going to do that? What are you going to need? This verse talks about it. Look what it says. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them, you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. If you want to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires, tell me what you need to tune in. Promises. Promises. You need to find security someplace. God wants you to find security in him, but if you don't find security in him, there's a lot of other things that claim to provide security. The only problem is, you know the difference between God and money? God will never cast you adrift or leave you behind, and money can't make that promise. Now again, use money. Use money. We have to use money. But it is not what's going to be there at the end of your road. Do you know God's promises? Again, I'm gonna, I'll be direct. Again, not a big bony finger here. Do you, do you make room for God's promises? If you do, you will be able to tune in God and find security in it. If you don't, again, this isn't a, you understand what I'm doing here. If you don't have a promise to grab, you're probably gonna, and we all do, tune out, tune in, turn from. I'm gonna encourage you, if you're gonna be brilliant about anything in the Christian life, listen to me. Be brilliant about his commitments to you. In fact, I would say, again, know his commands, but make sure you know his commitments. His commands will not create the security that will allow you to stay with him. His commitments will. Is that not what we find here? Again, so glance at what he wants you to do, but gaze at what he promises you. Where do you find those? There's a lot of promises wrapped up, a number of things. Well, you know what a good promise is? One of the best. It's the promise associated with the feast that we're going to experience right now. Communion. The promises that God makes you. God in you. I will write my law on your hearts, God in you, God with you. I will be your God, and you will be my people. You know what these are? This is the new covenant. Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is why Jesus died, to make these promises. I will put my law on your heart, God in you. I will be your God, and you will be my child, my son and daughter, God with you. I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sin no more, which means what it says it means, good ahead of you, guaranteed. I would recommend committing these promises to memory. This is the, again, learn the new covenant. But this is one way to break it down. God in you, God with you, God ahead of you, guaranteed. Because God says, I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sin no more. I will be Helios to your sin. I'm not, it's not going to create a barrier. Would you agree? Is there a degree of security in that? Here's what he says. God is looking at you. You're doing fine he is extending his hands not like this not for some kind of god-forbidden sacrifice like this and you sin yeah that's sin that's sin what does god do when you do that sin You know what he does? It says, I'll oh, forgive your wickedness and remember your sin no more. You know what he does? Nothing. He's doing this, you did the sin, and you know what he you know what he ended up doing? Did he do this? Okay. Did he do that when you sinned? Are you sure? Don't you hear that a lot? Well, maybe God doesn't turn his back, but you turn yours, you know it? But does that in Are God's promises dependent on your being sinless? Is God going to continue to keep his promises if you sin? Is that not what the new covenant says? I will put my law in your heart. I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my children. I will forgive your wickedness and will remember your sin no more. Does God, is God mindful of that thing that you did? Is he? What happened, what would happen if you believed that? What would happen if you brought that to mind? What hap, what would happen if you tuned that in? You know what would happen? You wouldn't tune yourself in and you wouldn't turn from him. Is that true? Absolutely. That's what communion's about. This is about promises that you know are in place because Jesus came to die to be able to extend them to you. What promises? God in you. God with you. Good ahead of you. Guaranteed. You draw some security from that? You know what I would encourage you to do? When you mess up, bring this to mind. When you say the thing you shouldn't say, do the thing you shouldn't do, watch the thing you shouldn't watch. Think about what he's saying. Tune him in. Tune him in. How would you tune him in? God, thank you that you're still in me. And you're still with me. And good is still ahead of me. Guaranteed. Is that the truth? I believe it is. And I believe that if you made room for it, it would begin to change you. That's what communion is about. It's about bulletproof promises. And God is smart enough to know that we need to walk up to that table. We need to take that cup. We need to take that piece of bread. And we need to think of a, of a new covenant that backs up ironclad promises. New covenant promises. You take the bread and take the cup. And when you eat them, I want you to think of that. Again, at some point during the music, take the elements, and, and then there will be a closing song in just a little bit. So let's grab the elements and let's remember this. Pray force. Father, thank you for giving us your very great and precious promises so that through them we could participate in the divine nature, not just imitate it, participate in it, have it coursing within us, and escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. There are so many of your promises that are so impactful, none more than new covenant promises that Jesus died on the cross to inaugurate. This is the new covenant in my blood in which you say you write your law in our hearts, we're your people and you're our God. You forgive our wickedness, and remember our sins no more, security inducing promises. Thank you for them, I pray that we'd make room for them. We'd be able to understand them, and in understanding them find the capacity to participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Thanks for the promises and for this celebration that brings us face to face with them yet once again, in Jesus' name. Amen.